Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Ukrainian President Zelensky has not let up on his criticism of NATO and told 60 Minutes in an interview that aired this past Sunday that he is no longer interested in the military alliance's diplomacy. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's turn to our first guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C., author of many books, including Volatile State, Iran in the Nuclear Age, and he's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict, which you can find on YT. Dr. David Walalu, as always, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you guys. So Zelensky says, when you're working in diplomacy, there are no results. All of this is very bureaucratic. That's why the way I'm talking to them is absolutely justified. I don't have any more lives to give. I don't have any more emotions. I'm no longer interested in their diplomacy that leads to the destruction of my country. Your thoughts about this, because I think all of this has to be analyzed or one of the other factors that has to be put into this equation is early on in this process, Zelensky was trying to find a diplomatic solution. The United States would not allow those diplomatic options to come to the table. Oh, yeah, absolutely correct, Walmart. But first, I'm going to start with one question. Does he understand what diplomacy is all about? And that becomes the basic on which we can argue that if he does have that understanding, he would have embarked on that 48 days ago. So Ukraine won't be experiencing what it's experiencing today. The second part is that he is, I think he needs to read more about history to understand. And history usually gives us uh, insight into what we can learn from the past. All I'm referring to here is his neighbor, Georgia, because here's the thing. It was the same mistake the former Georgian president, Mikhail Shakashvili, made. No. Uh, because when he sent the troops, he, Shakashvili, sent the troops back to the rebellion province of uh, South Asia. Russia acted the same way it is acting today to defend the Russian speakers. What Russia did, they deployed the uh, Russian soldiers to South Asia by deploying troops. And within five days, Russia defeated the Georgian army. So why I highlight this? I highlight this because the statement from uh, Shakashvili at that time is reflected exactly of what uh, uh, President Zelensky is doing. So by trying to bring in Europe, bring in the rest of the world into this conflict, he didn't understand that the world and NATO or whatever you want to call it, ain't going to fight a nuclear Russia. That's the bottom line to it. Well, there's a, I'll take a couple of things into, into this context. And one of them, that it's on 60 Minutes. And two words, Baghdad Bob. 
here this guy, I mean, th- let's face it, if you've been following this war, it's kind of in the final stages. The main part of his army is surrounded. I've been seeing videos with um, uh, the Ukrainian soldiers with their wisely with their arms up in the air, giving up. Unfortunately, sadly, I don't I'm not happy about it, but some of them are being blown up. But it certainly appears to me that perhaps he doesn't understand that they're asking him about options he doesn't have. He's like, I'm not giving up any of my country. The Russians already control at least 40 percent of it. Well, we're not going to recognize Crimea, Crimea. And I'm like, you're Baghdad, Bob. You're the, and so that's why I say this is like a 60 minutes propaganda operation with the pretense that he still has options that he absolutely doesn't have. The Russians are going to finish this and they will impose their will on this particular operation, whether Zelensky says he wants to do it or not. Your thoughts? Well, that's absolutely correct, Garland, because that was the whole. This is why the Russian president today has mentioned that Russia's do not achieve its military objectives. And, and, and that's a given. It's because the idea of, uh, here's the thing, here's the thing that I found very, very ironic. And uh, uh, Zelensky, you know, uh, I know he's been, uh, he's been nothing uh, but short uh, as a brilliant in his uh, uh, outreach to the Western audience. Okay. But the meeting that took place last month in Doha, it became evident. It became evident that his message has, has, has been far less compelling with countries on the border of the whole global south. NATO understood this. The U.S. understood that. So it was no, it's the disconnect that he seems to be saying one thing when the reality suggests otherwise. Russia is going to take over certain areas in Ukraine. That's fait accompli. So why is, why, why is the hype is all about? I think he's just acting no more, no less. Jake Sullivan says U.S. wants, quote unquote, independent Ukraine and a weakened Russia. He said this uh, Sunday on Meet the Press, our policy is unequivocal that we will do whatever we can to help Ukraine succeed. And he also said that he wants to see Russia weakened and isolated. I think half of that statement is true and the other half is a lie. Because if Jake Sullivan was interested in an independent Ukraine, the United States wouldn't have overthrown the democratically elected government of the Ukraine in 2014. But I do believe that this is all about trying to get to a weakened and isolated Russia. And then I'm going to succeed at that because it just the cards are in favor of Russia to make to achieve its objective. And I am talking from a realistic, pragmatic approach to seeing where things are moving towards. You know, this is, again, the same mistake that the other the Georgian president, former president Shekashvili made. And I think. You will think they will learn from history. They will learn that was the same miscalculation that they made. And Zelensky is doing the same. The only difference in the case of Zelensky is that Zelensky cannot make decisions on his own because he Mm -hmm. is managed by the West to do what they say, to act as they want him to act. And that's the end of it, because there is no way he can. If he's talking about this diplomacy, it's nothing but a bravado. And also, not only is uh, is Zelensky managed by the West, but Zelensky also has Nazis 
in his government that have threatened to assassinate him if he negotiates with President Putin. And I do see that coming to an end soon, uh, uh, Wilmer, because uh, at some point something's going to happen in that direction. And I can just see the trend where things are headed because he, he will have he already has no control within his own government. Mm-hmm. So Russians is going to have to do what they have to do to protect the Russian speakers, but also to ensure security, security of what is concerned to them. Now, here is the interesting aspect of it, is that there are reports now, and I am going to have to verify this, that NATO had a secret base in, in Odessa that is monitoring the movement of ships in the Black Sea. So... Now I am putting, as an analyst, I am putting the two and two together and figured, is this why Russia moving into that direction of Mariupol and all that? And it only gives me confidence that Russia knows something that they need to take care of to secure that access to the water because that is important. And now with this information of a secret base that belongs to NATO in Odessa, it makes perfect sense to me, militarily speaking as to why Russia is doing what it's doing. Well, the interesting thing is Jake Sullivan says he wants an uh, uh, independent Ukraine, a weakened and isolated Russia. Our, the U, I won't say our, the U.S. leadership's former allies in, in the Middle East won't answer the phone. India is saying, we're not going along with you. The U.S. is more isolated. The, um, the uh, inflation number just came out, and they're breaking records. They're saying that March inflation is through the roof. The U.S. is the weakened and isolated country here. Your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely correct, Alan. You look no further than the recent trips of the Austrian foreign minister to one of the Western leaders that went to Moscow. You look at what India had just said yesterday in the meeting between the defense minister of India and defense minister of the U.S. and the foreign ministers, both Blinken and the Indian foreign minister. And all of a sudden, now, the United States is a slamming India with human rights violation. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> why didn't you, the United States, say this a month ago? Why, and the reason why they are doing this, the United States is doing this, is because to India is a fair complete that they are moving forward. As a matter of fact, they are moving forward with Russia. As a matter of fact, they are, they, India and Russia, are on the final stages of finalizing the trade that's going to be taking place in their own currency, the rupees and the rubles. So this is why the United States is acting. So when Jake Sullivan talking about free Ukraine uh, because you want to weaken Russia or isolate Russia, no, it's the other way around, as you pointedly uh, uh, pointed to. It's the idea now that the countries are realizing the whole global south, if you look at the world map, the whole entire global south is moving into the direction where Russia is, not where the U.S. is asking for. And lo- looking at the reasons for and dangers behind the war in Ukraine, this is a uh, propaganda hysteria. This is something that uh, that amazes me. After doing this show every day and then going home and turning on the news it's almost as though I exist in some kind of um, separate universe, some dystopian universe, because the truths that we're discussing here are not in any way, shape, or form being articulated through mainstream media. 
<laughs> well, indeed, uh, I woke up this morning and I asked myself, am I living in a virtual reality here? Exactly. I mean, it just, uh, you're absolutely correct. It's because, and this is what, uh, now, now you are starting to see. The voices of reason are coming out mm-hmm. because this kind of lies are not holding any longer. Britain now is starting to feel the, the pinch of food shortages with the inflation roaring up to the roof. Germany is already feeling this. France is discontent. Uh, here in the U.S., we have our own issues to deal with. And you can just see that now people are starting to sort of realize maybe this, uh, this comedy has to have an end soon before it's too late. And this is where this now is starting to... You start to hear the... It's still in the West, of course, you're going to have these voices that's pushing for this idea like free Ukraine. And, and, but that's not going to hold up because reality suggests otherwise. It sounds to me, based on what's going on in France, that the regime change they were calling for, they may get it, but it might not be in <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> You're right. We got 30 seconds. I mean, Europeans are waking up to the reality, yes. Of course, it's not some the, the top leadership because the top leadership has uh, or has to, to toe the line with the U.S. But even with that credibility of the U.S., can you just imagine one thing here now, how India is going to react? If the United States keeps pushing on this, it will be over. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in RT entitled, U.S. Intel Community Killed Its Own Credibility by Revealing Its Ukraine Policies. Using disinformation to thwart an enemy is one thing. Spreading it to your own public and policymakers is another. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the UN in Iraq, and he's the author of this piece. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. You write, the recent acknowledgement to NBC News by unnamed sources that the U.S. government was declassifying intelligence to share with allies and the public to preempt and disrupt Russia, Russian planning, uh, undermine Moscow's propaganda and prevent Russia from defining how the war is perceived in the world, on the surface appears to avoid the pitfalls of politicalization laid out by Gates 30 years ago. Scott, in my opinion, this has less to do with some grand info war strategy and everything to do with formulating consent for immoral and illegal interventions and overthrows. Well, it can be both. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, once you deviate from the strict tenet of 
the you know, intelligence being about the sole pursuit of truth. I mean, that was the whole purpose of uh, Robert Gates meeting with uh, you know the, the CIA analysts in March of 1992 was to address the issue of um, the politicization of, of intelligence. And he was quite clear. Uh, the, the U.S. intelligence community, the analysts in this community have one job and one job only, and that is to pursue the truth no matter where it leads you. Uh, and you present that truth to your consumers, uh, generally speaking, the policymaking community, and then they have the job of using that data as they see fit. But at no time uh, do you get involved in their game. That's, that's the key. Uh, you, as an intelligence analyst, I, I can't sit there and say, oh, I'm going to shape what I'm doing here to meet the uh, policy objective of, uh, of, of some you know, American official in the National Security Council, the Pentagon, or the White House. The second you do that, you're no longer an intelligence uh, professional. You're a, a cheap propagandist, and you might as well go work for CNN. You know, Scott, I think the problem, too, we have here is that the neocons have turned the principle of truth inside out and they had no choice. And here's what I mean. And I'll get your comment on it. I think that the American, you know, many people have said it. Paul Robeson, lots of people have said, you know, if you give it to the American people, they prefer to have peace. If you give it to the average working class person, they don't want to go to war unless they're invaded. If the neocons actually told the American people their intentions, what they were doing, why they were doing it, the American people would reject it and say, no, we want to act like, uh, you know, normal human beings, not like the monsters that you people are. So in a way, the neocons have no choice. You know, this idea that they're lying to get into Putin's head or some crap like that. It's all about lying to the American people, to me, to deceive the American people into supporting policies that are not in their best interest. What are your thoughts? Well, we know this. I mean, we know that the, uh, the neocons uh, buy into the, the, the concept of the noble lie, meaning that, uh, you know, the, the, the average uh, American Joe just doesn't have the intellectual capacity to understand the big picture, to understand what the ultimate objectives are and why they're good for us. Therefore, it's okay to tell uh, a lie in order to get them to you know, buy into a policy direction so long as it takes us to the ultimate objective, which is the good that only the enlightened few can see. This is the noble lie. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a political philosophy that, you know, people can embrace. I don't believe in it. Uh, but that we step away, you see, because the lie there is being told by the policymaker. And, you know, with all due respect to every American politician of, of any walk, uh, they're all liars. They all campaign and they lie. They promise things they never deliver. That's just the way it's always been. I'm talking about the intelligence professional. The intelligence professional does not play that game, cannot play that game. Because in the intelligence profession, uh, especially when it's linked to the military profession, when you lie, you die. It's literally that simple. So we don't get involved in the political game. We don't get involved in the noble lie. We don't get involved in the spin. We are only about the objective pursuit of truth. And then we provide that to the policymakers. And generally speaking, the processes that are involved in achieving that truth are classified. The sources and methods we use, um, 
and 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 insights into you know what the intelligence gaps are, et cetera. We keep that secret for a reason. What we're seeing here today is a deliberate um, you know effort by the intelligence community to declassify intelligence, not to enlighten people, but to deceive people. We've always declassified intelligence when necessary to enlighten people. Um, Kennedy declassified the U-2 photographs during the Cuban Missile Crisis to enlighten the American public about the truth about Russian missiles or Soviet missiles in Cuba. Ronald Reagan declassified the uh, intercepted conversations of Russian pilots uh, to reveal to the American people the truth about the shootdown of Korean Airlines Flight 007. Uh, you know, we do this. But when you lie, you manufacture. Colin Powell, going before the Security Council, uh, lying to them about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Look where it got us. The, the lie using intelligence information is, to me, the ultimate sin. Because we expect politicians to lie. Hell, we, we want them to lie. Uh, we enjoy them lying, apparently, because we keep voting for them. But the intelligence professionals, they can't lie. It's just literally impermissible because the moment you do that, you seek being that which you claim to be. You're no longer an intelligence professional. Two things. One, are you, I, don't, I know you're not shocked, maybe disappointed, that no one in mainstream media has really picked up on this story for what it really is. And the other thing is we talked last week or maybe the week before that we were seeing the Pentagon release information through U.S. News and World Report and I can't remember the other source now, but both mainstream sources to counter the dominant narrative. Now, this NBC release seems to have come from the uh, State Department to counter the perceived Pentagon release of information. So we were talking uh, days ago that there seemed to be a schism between the State Department and the Pentagon. The State Department, Tony Blinken and Victoria Nuland and Jake Sullivan trying to take us to war, and the Pentagon releasing information from inside sources trying to counter that narrative. Is this NBC release the State Department response to that? I, I, I believe so. First of all, when we talk about the Pentagon release, that's a different kind of release. That's old school release, mm -hmm. old criminal release, um, you know, because it wasn't declassified. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you have somebody releasing information of a classified nature to persons who are unauthorized to receive it. Mm -hmm. um, this, but this, that process, even though it's a crime, falls into, again, the concept of enlightening people right. as to what the truth is. This is a departure from mm -hmm. what is happening now with you know, what looks to be the State Department, which is declassifying for the purpose of deceiving people, of, of shaping uh, public opinion in a manner that deviates from the truth, because you know it deviates from the truth because you've declassified a lie, and you're disseminating the lie as if it's the truth. So those are two totally different approaches. Um, they both appear to be working uh, not in concert with each other, um, in opposition to each other, but part of the same um, you know, politicization process, because that's what we're talking about, the selected release of information for political purposes.
Kaylin Johnson has an interesting article, Twitter is state-affiliated media. Twitter has been working in steadily increasing intimacy with the U.S. government since it began pressuring um, Silicon Valley platforms to regulate content in support of the establishment following the 2016 election. I would argue you could go back to there were some uh, there was an Iran, Iran election and there was some unrest and Twitter um, decided not to do some work on their platforms so that the Iran protesters could, could utilize that. And so they worked on behalf of the State Department. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was Jake Sullivan was the one who actually called Twitter and told him to do that. But at any rate, as a man who has been off, ago, off again, I mean, on again, off again, and from what I hear, off again with Twitter, your thoughts on Caitlin Johnstone's article and how it – I mean, why in the heck are you off Twitter again, Scott? Well, I'm off Twitter again because apparently uh, a tweet that actually predated the tweet that got me kicked <laughs> off the first time, but about the same subject, <clears throat> has offended an algorithm or um, one of their adolescent um, thought police. I can't explain why I'm off other than that I, I'm promoting a narrative that deviates sharply from uh, the accepted narrative, which means that Caitlin Johnson's 100% correct. Um, you know, you, you talk what you talk about, and it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, Jake Sullivan. I think it was a, a guy named uh, uh, Cohen um, who, who did this. He, he's now a Google yes. um, uh, official, but at the time he was a, a State Department person working for uh, Hillary Clinton, promoting a concept they called digital democracy. And uh, digital democracy was using uh, social media platforms as a soft power tool to um, to spread um, information uh, and to um, mobilize public discontent uh, in in targeted nations. Uh, it was it was a part of a, a U.S. government policy, um, and. You know, you'd say, well, what's wrong with spreading information? It's targeted information for the purpose of undermining, uh, you know, legitimate government. So it's a, a, a tool of destabilization as opposed to a, a tool of, um, you know, spreading uh, truth through uh, widespread dissemination of fact. Um, and we, 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 we've seen them turn into these uh, social committees uh, or, uh, that, that were in Syria that got hijacked by the jihadists that gave birth to ISIS and for, you know, uh, facilitated the spread of al-Qaeda. Uh, we've seen them used in Iran to target the you know, so-called Green Revolution, which was nothing more than a CIA-backed effort to overthrow the Iranian government. Um, so Twitter is a tool of the U.S. government. That's all I can say. It just literally is. Now, if you want to do that abroad, so be it. I don't care. I mean, I can, I can oppose it and all that, but that's a tool of U.S. foreign policy. But when you turn that around and use it at home, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where you know, free speech is a cornerstone of what defines us as a democracy, um, and people can't say, well, it's Twitter, they get to make their own rules. No. When a Twitter CEO sits in front of a congressional committee, it gets lambasted and told that they will write legislation that restricts Twitter. Um, that's pressure put on Congress to achieve this. So it is the direct equivalent of Congress passing legislation to restrict free speech. This is an outright frontal assault on the First Amendment, and I don't know why Americans don't see this. Have the terrorists won? 
And what I mean, I ask that from an ideological perspective. In, in my opinion, after 9-11, the United States turned on itself. It turned on the Constitution. It turned on many of the principles and precepts uh, that we took for granted and we thought were sacrosanct. And the United States now has turned on the First Amendment. It's turned on a number of other uh, freedoms and protections, which I believe were the long-term objectives of the terrorists. It wasn't a matter that they could defeat us militarily. It was a matter of they would defeat us uh, intellectually and ideologically. Has that happened, Scott Ritter? Absolutely. Look, in World War II, and and I'm going to say some things I hope people don't take it wrong, but in World War II, we were willing to sacrifice more than 300,000 Americans in defense of uh, the, the, the notions of freedom. We challenged totalitarianism, et cetera. 9-11, 3,000 Americans, or 3,000 people, many of them Americans, tragically died. Okay, but that is a drop in the bucket. You know, Americans joined the military to die in defense of the Constitution. And now we have people going to war uh, against the global, you know, as part of the global war on terror, while at home, our government destroys the very constitution we're asking these people to defend. We no longer represent that which we claim to be. And we start with freedom of speech. We get into this whole notion of government surveillance. The government, we no longer trust ourselves as a nation, as a people, as a collective, as a society. And we are so far removed from what we claim to be, that we're no longer the United States uh, that that our forefathers fought and died for in World War II. Uh, So yes, the terrorists won because they killed America. They beat America. Sure, something called the United States of America exists today, but it's a shadow of its former self. It's a shell of uh, the the kettle of democracy and freedom that we claim to be. Um, We are no longer that which is worthy of the sacrifice of patriotic life uh, to defend. Okay. And I, you know, I, that's just a sad state of affair. But in, unless we fix this, people who are wearing our uniform and fighting and dying, they're dying for something other than freedom. They're dying for something other than the Constitution because the Constitution no longer matters. They're dying for Exxon and they're dying for Raytheon, uh, for Raytheon and they're dying for Lockheed Martin. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. South Korea's new hawkish president will mean complete alignment with Washington's neocons. Also, the U.S. has positioned an aircraft carrier strike group near the Korean Peninsula. Joining us to discuss this, we have journalist, peace activist, and writer, K.J. No. Oh, I left out, and even teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I really want to start, I guess, at the bottom, you know, because this is something that turns my stomach a little bit. There's a Responsible Statecraft article, Will North Korea Test a Nuclear Weapon Next? And 
they, they so they they talk about the possibility that um, North Korea could test a nuclear weapon, and they're saying that you know it's a what he, that what North Korea is doing is a a provocation, and that this could you know. Um, end up with something terrible, something horrible happening, which would be North Korea testing a nuclear weapon. I don't think anybody should, but we've tested nuclear weapons. It's not like they're testing them on a city of people. When you read this and when you go further down this responsible statecraft article, it goes on to say that and that North Korea may end up selling. Um, it says if it can't get any relief, it will most likely where to get the evidence from. So whatever military it has to the highest bidder, as it is clearly done with Iran, as if Iran's not a technologically advanced country. I mean, I read this and clearly it is a, you know, responsible statecraft. You got to take the good with the bad. But in my opinion, it really is the bad. And it doesn't take into account that we, that the United States empire is the one that's laying economic and military siege to North Korea, not the other way around. You're absolutely correct. I mean, just to go back to the history, which is relevant and important, North Korea was almost wiped off the face of the earth. According to U.S. Uh, you know, estimates, they killed off, what, one-fifth of the population? People traveling through North Korea at the time said that it looked like they were traveling on the surface of the moon. So North Korea wants, what North Korea wants is security. It would like security through peace, through a peace treaty and normalization of relations. But if it can't get that, it will use deterrence. And this frames, this article frames this as North Korea as an irresponsible actor. It is actually a very responsible actor. And the U.S. approach to North Korea has been, uh, respectively, a strategic patience, which is essentially a collapsist doctrine. Sanction it until it collapses and dies, or CVID, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, complete, verifiable, verifiable and irreversible denuclearization, which is essentially uh, telling North Korea to pull itself over the table and spread its gluteus maximus and hope for the best. None of those approaches are going to work. And North Korea is looking for deterrence. And anything that um, portrays that as something irrational or, or unrealistic, you know, is, I think, extraordinarily misguided. It does uh, the foreign policy uh, community a disservice. You know, they also go on to talk about the um, what happened recently, and they say Kim Jo Kim Yo, Yo Jung. This is um, uh, uh, um, Kim Jong Un, I believe, his sister. They say she lashed out in two separate statements carried in North Korea state media. Media. What caught many watchers' attention? She seemed to threaten nuclear war. And here's the two words: if attacked by South Korea, I I I, I take. Um, uh, self-defense, right? I, I'm not going to hit or kick or bite or poke or do anything to anybody. But if attacked, if I'm backed into a corner and I'm attacked, I will do anything I can, whatever I got. And I, and you back me into the corner and I said, I don't want to fight. Once I realize there's nowhere else I can retreat, it is, I got to try to come out of that corner alive. That's the way I'm trained in self-defense. And when someone says, yeah, I'll use nukes, 
if you attack me, well, here's an easy thing. Don't attack them. What would any small country do if they were attacked by it? Because they know if they are attacked by South Korea, they are attacked by the U.S. empire, not South Korea. So it's preposterous to argue that someone is being aggressive by saying, if you try to kill me, I will use any any method I have to defend myself. Yes, and exactly. Uh, you know, South Korea's new uh, president-elect has threatened a preemptive strike on North Korea. Uh, recently, that was reiterated by somebody uh, in the administration. And I think it's very instructive to look at what Kim Yo-jong actually did say. Uh, she said uh, that South Korea is not our principal enemy unless the South Korean army takes any military action against our state, it will not be regarded as a target of our attack. We oppose war. We are against such war. Our principal enemy is war itself. But the South Korean army, if it amounts a preemptive strike on us, um, uh, then this is uh, a dangerous and nasty expression. If anybody does not provoke us, we will never strike it before anything else. Uh, uh, if South Korea, for any reason, opts for a military action such as a preemptive strike, uh, in that case, South Korea itself will become a target. But I want you to hear all of the, you know, the kind of conditions and, uh, you know, uh, uh, statements before, you know, this statement. So it's been selectively edited and, uh, you know, once again, used to portray North Korea as some out-of-control rogue state, when actually they've said, you know, in this statement or multiple times, South Korea is not an enemy. We don't wish them any ill will. We don't want to fight them. Only and if and only if they attack us will we consider a preemptive strike? And so you can see, once again, the bad faith of the media portraying this as some kind of, you know, North Korean, you know, threat and provocation. And, you know, it's interesting because Sergei Lavrov mentioned that the Ukraine war was basically uh, meant to stop the uh, U.S. From, use, from, from world hegemony. And he, you know, talked about the so-called, you know, the Rubio rules-based order. And when you look at this, it's riddled. This is riddled with rule-based order stuff, stuff rules-based order stuff in that the U.S. has a right to fire missiles, uh, 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 test nuclear weapons, own nuclear weapons. No other country has a right to do it. They talk about the Biden administration needs to negotiate with them to get rid of their nuclear weapons. Here's the reality. Reality. I mean, if we're honest, they'd be out of their minds looking at what happened with Iraq, looking at what happened with Syria, looking at what happened with Libya. And might I add, they've already been threatened with being treated in the same way like Libya. So in an order, in a world order that's based in international law, that's based in everyone having the same expectation of rights and respecting sovereignty, isn't that a completely different discussion with North Korea than the one that this particular article is implying? Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Under international law, which understands that states are sovereign, not to be interfered with, not to be invaded, not to be aggressed, not to be threatened with invasion, um, you know, uh, North Korea uh, would have, would be within its rights to defend itself if it felt like those elements were being threatened. But 
you're absolutely correct. North Korea would be out of its mind if it subjected itself to the U.S. and currently what looks to be the South Korean policy of CDID, complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization. That is the Libya model. You put yourself, pull yourself over the table and you hope for the best. You can only do that, uh, you, you can't do that, you know, over and over again. And it's a kind of definitional insanity for the U.S. foreign policy class to think that they can pull that on North Korea or to expect North Korea to submit to that. And at the same time, we have multiple reports that the U.S. has moved the USS Abraham Lincoln Aircraft Striker Group near the Korean Peninsula. Um, They're expected to enter the East Sea later this week as, quote, a show of force in response to recent North Korean missile tests. And it says the provocative maneuvers were first reported by South Korea outlet Yonhap. So the U.S. says you are doing a provocation by firing a missile that is not in violation of international law. Now, we're going to bring ships around you and aircraft carries around you, and we're doing it intentionally as a provocation to you. You have no right to do things that under international law are not a, a, a considered a provocation, and we do it all the time. Now we're going to deliberately prov- uh, provoke you. It, again, it's turning um, fairness and international law inside out where we can threaten you. And if I'm North Korea, I mean, just to be frank, if I'm North Korea, I say, I don't have nothing to talk about. If you want to talk, stop threatening me. Oh, and by the way, I'll never give up my nuclear weapons as long as you people are what you are. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, bringing an aircraft carrier strike group, the Abraham Lincoln, into the East Sea, I mean, this is like moving a Death Star you know, into the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strategic weapon. It's a weapon of mass destruction. And the message is sent to North Korea that, you know, we are rehearsing your complete and total destruction along with Japan, where they are, you know, training, uh, cooperating, exercising, you know, with the Japanese forces as well. And so it sends a very, very threatening message uh, And this is a routine message that is often sent to North Korea, but the North Koreans do not uh, tolerate that. And anytime something like that happens, you know, they re-escalate. They will move up the escalation ladder. They do not back down. And, you know, it's, you know, as I said before, it's like, you know, Mike Mike Tyson after uh, the age of 12, you know, he was not willing to be humiliated. And he would pound, you know, adult professional boxers into the ground. North Korea, uh, you know, is the Mike Tyson that has grown up. And it's a mistake uh, to think otherwise. The carrier strike group is extraordinarily threatening. It is certainly, uh, by UN standards, the threat uh, and the kind of, um, you know, the intimidation, you know, goes against international law. And the U.S. frames it as a freedom of navigation operation, freedom of the open Indo-Pacific. But the simple fact is that it's directed against China and North Korea. And most of the navigation, most of the shipping is either, go- is either going to China or coming from China. And so it's, you know, it's a threadbare and, uh, you know, risible, um, you know, statement.
Uh, we've only got about a minute left, but do you think that um, there'll be this kind of new world order, this new group that North Korea, North Korea will be a part, will be a, much of a part of it, or will be allowed into it? Um, the East Eurasia group. Your thoughts? We got about a minute. I think you're. I think it's absolutely going to be part of it. China, uh, North Korea, Venezuela, uh, Iran, etc. It's 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 a new new pole. Of, of economic and uh, military uh, strength, uh, and it will not be pushed around. And I think the U.S. is severely miscalculating if it thinks it can do that. Just one more point. The, uh, the Korean government sent a foreign policy delegation to, um, to the White House uh, expecting to meet with Biden. They didn't get to meet with Biden. They didn't get to meet with Harris. They didn't get to meet with anybody. But they were offering... U.S. foreign policy on a silver platter back to the U.S., and they were not able to meet with anybody except for Sullivan. And so that's a huge humiliation, even as the South Koreans, you know, tried to be the ultimate in sycophantic, uh, you know, a subservience to the U.S. Well, thanks a lot. We've been talking with K.J. No. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russia seeks to end U.S.-dominated world order, according to Secretary Lavrov. Washington acts based on ad hoc rules that violate international law, according to the Russian foreign minister. How does this manifest itself going forward? And then, and is this another salvo in a ongoing Cold War? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a historian who currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of our most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So it's reported Russia's military action in Ukraine is meant to put an end to the U.S.-dominated world order. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has explained Washington has been seeking supremacy by imposing ad hoc rules and violating international law, he claimed in an interview aired on Russian television on Monday. Your thoughts, uh, Dr. Horn, and is this, again, a, another salvo in this ongoing Cold War? It's certainly another salvo. Uh, whether it's a salvo in the ongoing Cold War is another question. What I, what I mean by that is that we need more critical distance before we ascertain if this current conflict in Eastern Europe is just another chapter in the Cold War or whether it's actually a concluding chapter of World War II. What I mean by that is we know that with World War II, the United States and the then Soviet Union were on the same side, but rather swiftly, U.S. imperialism moved to distance itself from Moscow, to put it mildly, by launching the Red Scare and exacerbating the Cold War. We thought 
that that chapter had concluded on December 25th, 1991, with the Soviet Union collapsing. But apparently that's not the case. Having said that, I would recommend to your audience that they read the transcript on RT.com of the interview with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, because it not only reflects upon that huge question that your question suggests and my answer responded to, but it also speaks to the tumultuous events following February 2014 with the dislodging of one regime and the coming into power of another, of which Mr. Zelensky is just the successor. What I mean by that is, is that Mr. Lavrov suggests in that interview, the full transcript of that interview, that part of the problem was that the pre-February 2014 regime in Kiev, Ukraine, was trying not necessarily to block Ukraine from entering the European Union, but Mr. Lavrov said that there was a problem insofar as there was an agreement with the EU that allowed tariff-free goods to travel into Ukraine, and then there was an agreement that Ukraine had with Russia that was also tariff-free, and so Russia wanted Kiev to somehow work this out so that Russia would not be deluged with tariff-free goods from the European Union. And given the fact that the European Union is about four times the size and population, or three times the size and population of Russia, this could mean some sort of takeover of the Russian economy by the EU, or at least flooding Russia with European Union goods without a tariff. And he says that was the breaking point. That was the point at issue. But in any case, with regard to its wider point, perhaps the more profound point of whether or not Russia is seeking to dislodge this U.S.-dominated order, I think that that has been going on for some time. All one has to do is trace the alphabet soup of acronyms that we oftentimes use. Washington speaks of Rubio, the rule-based international order, uh, Moscow and its allies speak of the UN, the United Nations system. The rules-based international order is rather vague. It's not clear what it means besides U.S. domination, whereas we know what the UN order means in terms of the Security Council and the General Assembly. But even before Mr. Lavrov's weighty pronouncement, there were steps to suggest that the world was moving away from the U.S. dominated order. There's Another acronym, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, which, of course, uh, is challenging in a de facto sense, the U.S.-dominated system. There's SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that includes in the leadership Russia and China that's doing the same. You have the RCEP, excuse me, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, led by China and a number of of Asian nations that's challenging a U.S. and EU hegemony. You have BRI, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative of China, that is investing heavily, trillions in, in infrastructure, not least in Africa. And what's also telling with regard to moving away from this U.S.-dominated order is that Washington has now conceded as much 
because it's now trying to grieve life into the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which heretofore it has tried to sanction and has excoriated because they had opened a file looking at U.S. human rights violations in Afghanistan, not to mention uh, analyzing the human rights depredations of the U.S. ally in Israel. But now they're wanting to use the ICC to go after Moscow and Putin and Lavrov individually. But in a sense, that is a sign of weakness. It's a sign that the United States, which once thought that it did not have to pay attention to an organization like the ICC, now feels that it has to pay attention to the ICC. And objectively, that is a sign of weakness. And objectively, I think it means that what Mr. Lavrov was saying in that interview we're discussing is worthy of attention. Dr. Horn, um, two things I'd like to throw at you. They're very connected. To me, when um, Foreign Minister Lavrov says that the action is meant to put an end to the U.S.-dominated world order, it implies a coalition. It implies we're not doing this alone and we've discussed this with other people, etc. That's number one. And in connection to that, and I'm not going to say this is an intentional, but it almost it almost feels like the U.S. fell into a trap in that. And I don't mean it was intentional. This could have been serendipitous. But this happens and the U.S. throws all these sanctions and seizes money. And all of these other countries who might not have been in the coalition suddenly, coalition suddenly say, holy moly, the Westerners will take our money. We better move our money eastward or somewhere else. We may be victims next. So it's almost like maybe a serendipitous kind of trap. At any rate, your thoughts on those two things together? Well, obviously, there's something to what you say. Obviously, the term de-dollarization will be more commonly used in coming weeks, months, and years. Uh, that is to say, the moving away from the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. And obviously, this is prompted in no small measure by the United States seeking, in a sense, to confiscate a Russian assets that happen to be in dollars, which is a signal to other countries that is quite perilous to have your assets somehow connected to the North American colossus. And that is going to mean more emphasis not only on cryptocurrencies, which of course is sort of a wild west right now, but also more realistically, more emphasis on commodities such as gold, with which Russia has a profusion, also South Africa, such as natural gas, which Russia has a profusion, but also Algeria, also Qatar, the Persian Gulf monarchy. And increasingly, it seems to me, de-dollarization uh, puts an emphasis and an accent on commodities. And that, in a sense, helps to validate your hypothesis that Washington does not want de-dollarization. But I would add the further footnote that Washington has overestimated its strength, which it should not have done in light of my previous comment about the rise of the BRICS, the SCO, the rise of the RCEP, the Belt and Road Initiative, there are all of these signals pointing to the fading hegemony of U.S. imperialism, but heedlessly they ignored those signs, charged ahead, and as your comments suggest, may find themselves in the jaws of a bear trap. 
You suggested that people go to RT and and read the interview. I also suggest people look up and read the speech by President Putin called the Empire of Lies, what has become known as the Empire of Lies speech. Uh, That is an incredibly, incredibly telling exploration of of what President Biden is at, what President Putin is actually thinking and why. And you mentioned the ICC and the United States now having to rely on the ICC. I think it's important for people to know that, A, the U.S. does not sign on to the ICC, but wants to kind of raise its name when it becomes convenient. And there's also the Hague Invasion Act, which allows the president of the United States to invade the Hague if it is determined that <laughs> Americans are being uh, imprisoned or detained as a result of a uh, determination by the ICC. That, to me, is criminal in and of itself. A fair point. And this belated reliance or attempted reliance on the ICC also speaks another point. Uh, heretofore, the ICCC has basically been an anti-African court. Mm-hmm. And now the United States— Explain explain what you mean by that. Well, if you look at the people who go to The Hague to be put on trial, overwhelmingly and disproportionately— Are African leaders. leaders. Are <laughs> African leaders. Are African leaders. And now the United States, which was quite willing, obviously, to go along with that uh, misrule, now finds itself— trying to use the ICC, which heretofore had been sort of a black court. And that is not a good look for a country based on white supremacy, a country where for the longest period of its history, simple labor was disdained because it was seen as Negro work. And so that is just further evidence of the thesis for today, the impending decline, if not implosion, of U.S. imperialism. You know, the other piece of this, too, is that the ICC has made a number of determinations that have been uh, figured to be against the interests of the Zionist state of Israel. And the United States has done everything in its in its power to ignore those determinations and investigations about Israel engaging in war crimes and Israel engaging in genocide. And the United States does everything in its power to ignore those. We have just about a minute. Well, bringing up Israel is further evidence of the changing of global winds, because as we've said more than once on this program, Israel is beginning to hedge. It senses that U.S. imperialism is in decline, which is why it has refused to castigate Russia for the Ukraine intervention, and why, as we've said more than once, and I'm surprised it hasn't received more attention, uh, why Israel has been re- uh, accused credibly of leaking sophisticated U.S. military technology to the People's Republic of China, which, of course, is the ascending power, just as U.S. imperialism is the descending power. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Interesting article, uh, sea border talks between Israel and Lebanon on verge of imminent collapse. Probably most of y'all didn't know that there w- that these talks were going on. What's going on here and what's at stake? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So there is an ongoing dispute that has been ongoing for quite a while between Lebanon and Israel over a maritime boundary that could affect Lebanon's ability to proceed with its offshore Uh, oil and gas development plans. The Biden administration is proposing that Israel and Lebanon share a potentially rich hydrocarbon field between them, known as the Kana Prospect after a town in South Lebanon. Laith Marouf, what's going on here? And give us some background on this, because again, a lot of folks don't even know that this is going on. Well, uh, obviously, Uh, Lebanon and Palestine, Occupy Palestine, share a border. Uh, The the problem right now for the Lebanese is trying to uh, access the gas fields in the Mediterranean while they are still at war with the Zionist colony. So how do you negotiate on what is the maritime borders, um, especially when the uh, mediator is the Americans when we know, of course, the Americans are not uh, standing on the side here. They are part of the colonial project. And and uh, also the actual mediator appointed by the Americans is an Israeli citizen, of uh, double citizen of the United States and Israel. So here we have a very biased mediation happening. And the Israelis are attempting to not follow the natural uh, border, uh, you know, use an angle that is different that's going to end up eating up most of the uh, gas in the south parts of Lebanon in the sea, Mediterranean Sea, and especially, specifically this huge gas field that we're talking. And the Americans in this attempt to make the Lebanese have a shared oil field with the Zionist colony is basically trying to have normalization without saying there's normalization. And of course, the resistance in Lebanon will not allow this to happen. So, so Leith, when you look at a map between uh, at, at, uh, of Lebanon and you see that at the southern part, there is a border between Lebanon and Israel. When we look at territorial waters, which is really what we're disputing here, we have issues over fishing. We have issues over, over water rights. There are all kinds of things that involve territorial waters. Is the issue that Israel wants to engage in slant drilling into the territorial waters of Lebanon? No, it's it's okay. more like uh, they are disputing the angle that comes off the uh, a, a rock that is right there at the border between Lebanon and Palestine, and uh, you know whether it's going straight line or going with an angle, and of course even a slight angle, a uh, little bit more to the north this straight line will end up, you know, Lebanon losing a huge area of like hundreds of kilometers. 
once you okay. uh, stretch it out to 200 miles into the water where this the exclusive economic zones of each country are uh, extend to, to okay. 200 miles so uh the issue is how much is the angle from the rock at the border uh jutting out from the from the land into the water so um of course the lebanese are standing by the position of uh, what the Psycho-Spico agreement between France and and the United Kingdom when they chopped up the region, uh, and the Israelis are trying to make up whatever is best for them. So the Lebanese position is following the uh, declared borders as uh, accepted by the League of Nations and the United Nations when the mandate, the French and the English mandate existed. Quick comment on Amos Hochstein, it, uh, just a little a quick background on him. A lot of people don't know. He did a Hunter Biden-esque move in Ukraine when the U.S. Uh, overthrew the government of Ukraine and Hunter Biden went in and got um, joined a board call, of a company called Burisma for like $80,000 a month. Amos Hochstein went in and did the same thing to a company called Naftogaz. Naftogaz is the um, the official gas company of Ukraine. So this guy is, has a history of, uh, you know, going in and let's say being a, an opportunist when it comes to gas. So I, I suspect in the end, if this deal gets signed, uh, Amos Hochstein is going to make out pretty good. But let me ask you this. The, it remind, this reminds me of what the Chinese said, because the, the because a Blinken went to the Chinese and said, hey, how about we work together on climate change? And the Chinese basically said, you're going to surround us with missiles, threaten to militarily decapitate us, threaten us every seven ways from Sunday, and then say, well, we'll choose a couple little areas that that are advantageous to us to work with you. And it seems that that's kind of what's going on, that the U.S. empire is saying we will wipe out the economy of Lebanon, make the people suffer, make the people hungry, destroy their um, their, their economy. Oh, wait a minute. This is advantageous to, to Israel. We'll work with you on this, this particular thing. And it seems to me there are a lot of people in Lebanon that's saying, just like the Chinese, we don't want to buy into that kind of thing. Am I wrong? Yes, yes. And also, basically, the Israelis are taking advantage of the position that the Americans created of this destruction of the Lebanese economy and, of course, the explosion in the port and such, that they would think that the Lebanese right now are soft enough as a target, softened enough to accept anything as long as they can access their uh, some of this gas. Because uh, the Lebanese government has been approaching international um, you know, companies to dig for the gas and oil in the Mediterranean, and they have been refusing because until Israel allows them to do such. So therefore, no prospecting of uh, an extraction of gas and oil in the Mediterranean waters of Lebanon will happen as long as the United States and and Israel don't allow it to happen. And so this may be a, a, a sophomoric or, or basic question, but how does the United States wind up being the arbiter of this issue? <laughs> it's because it's an imperialist power. It can oh! pressure these companies. <laughs> oh, I, I, I forgot about yeah. that. My mistake. Yeah. My mistake. Yes, the so, companies. The U.S. runs the entire yeah, world. I, I, sorry. And, and the moon, too. I, I forgot. I, just, I think the moon we've uh, And also. now they're working on Mars. Yeah. I'm sorry. My mistake. Yeah. Times of Israel reports Iran says U.S. not showing uh, necessary will to revive the nuclear agreement. Um, we're now battling over 
uh, whether or not certain as certain uh, whether the Revolutionary Guard Corps will be uh, taken from the U.S. terror list. I think we talked with you about this yesterday. Uh, this now really seems to be both sides are digging their heels in. And is this really the beginning of the end or the end of the end? Leith Maroof. Yes, I think in terms of this deal, it's going to unravel right now. And the United States is, you know, tried its best to stretch this process that it knew will not uh, lead to a deal as long as it can. This is what it, its aim was, to distract Iran and to diffuse some of the conflict zones in Western Asia in order to concentrate its focus on uh, taking on Russia in the Ukraine. And uh, obviously, uh, the Iranians have been smart enough uh, to be very strong in their position and very open in the public about these positions that it didn't give a chance for the United States to uh, stretch uh, this process even longer. And I think Iran is going to be in a much better situation once this deal uh, collapses and its public would have seen uh, clearly that uh, the government attempted its best and the Americans are not to be trusted. And then I think this will free Iran to uh, uh, begin to um, you know activate and uh, the coalition of axis of resistance to confront America and its uh, vessels here in Western Asia. And we also see an interesting story that uh, Iran is going to, and this is in press TV, so it's an Iranian story. They're, go they're going to strengthen their ties with African countries. Do you think that's part of this move to form a new kind of, uh, a broader, shall we say, anti-imperialist bloc, understanding that the U.S. has AFRICOM and is trying to, you know, do everything it can to counter China, Russia and China in Africa? You know, this reminds me, I saw a copy of uh, a letter written by Huey uh, Newton, um, the chairman of uh, Black Panthers, to the Iranian people delivered to the Iranian embassy in San Francisco at the time of the uh, Islamic Revolution in 1979, uh, you know, declaring the support for the Islamic Revolution and the liberation of the Iranian people from the Shah and uh, the American imperialist forces. This is very important because it's been you know, now there was a lull in 20, 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union between uh, intra-Southern relations, South-to-South -south exchange of liberation movements, you know, of the Haley's, of Black, uh, American, African peoples, and the Arabs and Muslims and Latinos all working collectively uh, in Southeast Asians to uh, fight imperialism, a new generation must be born. And this cannot happen on the sidelines. It needs and it requires actual state support, like in the old days that uh, saw, you know, Cuban revolutionaries helping and uh, Palestinian revolutionaries and helping in the liberation of uh, African countries. Our brothers and sisters uh, helping on the other side with becoming, you know, fighters coming to Palestine and what have you from all across the world uh, to help in this liberation. This is a uh, monumental moment if uh, Iran actually, uh, you know, pays a lot of attention to Africa right now, um, we can see much uh, important collaboration.
It's reported that the ceasefire in Yemen is holding, that there's now been the first week without airstrikes since 2015. What is your sense of the reality of this, and is that an indicator that that a peaceful outcome could actually uh, come from this? I mean, this is uh, really good news for the people of Yemen. Uh, they've been living under these constant air raids since 2015, as you mentioned. And uh, they are finally being able to sleep, not worried to, uh, that they will be buried under their homes. Um, so uh, on that on that note, I'm very much uh, happy for the Yemeni people. I'm just uh, worried, as we see with the uh, when we were talking right now just before about the nuclear deal with Iran, that the United States and in this situation, its lackeys, its vessels, the Saudis. Uh, how much, uh, how trustworthy uh, should they, you know, be with them? And this ceasefire uh, is uh, only set for two months. Um, would it last these two months? I don't know. Um, you know, in any case, I believe that there will be a return to hostilities, and it will all depend uh, how uh, violent the return to these hostilities will happen. It will all depend on, um, you know, what the Saudis do next. Are they willing to withdraw, actually, or are they going to continue trying to find another way to uh, control a country of Yemen, which uh, the Yemeni people will not accept? We have just about a minute left, and if you need longer to, for for this answer, then, then please, uh, not a problem. When we look at what's happening in Ukraine, a lot of what I'm reading and my understanding of history is the United States does not want peace in Ukraine. Do you get a sense that the United States does not want peace in Yemen? Oh, I think uh, the United States doesn't want peace anywhere in the world, that there is not a sub a people that have been defeated mentally and physically. As long as you, you live in a country that has a proud people that have still their mental independence, uh, that you will be uh, suffering from war coming to you. Uh, the United States cannot accept a dignified people in its way anywhere on this globe. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Jared Kushner is cashing in on $2 billion of Saudi money, while new Hunter Biden revelations threaten to derail the Biden presidency. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Steve Poikin, and he's a national organizi organizer of Action for Assange, and he's the host of Slow News Day, a morning show on Rockfin. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, thanks, Garland. Great to be here. Uh, before we get started, where can people find you and find out what, what, what good work, fine works and good works you are doing online these days? Uh, primarily, you can find the show on rockfin.com slash slow newsday, and all of the social media is at slow newsday show. And is there a W, slow newsday with no W, right? 
Or do you have a W? Uh, no, there is a W. There, there is a W. Oh, okay. Well, it goes to show how good yeah. I am at, uh, at this thing. So let's start here. Look, let me add one other thing, because what we're really talking about here is corruption, a, cor- a, a corrupt system. Kushner, Biden. But let me add one other thing, and, 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 and I'll explain it to you. Well, one of the stories we're covering today is about the I- Israel and Lebanon um, negotiating for a deal on some gas field, right? It, it's, it lies in between the two countries. And the guy who has been chosen to do this is a guy named Amos Hochstein. Amos Hochstein, interestingly, was also chosen by Bi- Joe Biden a few months back to interrupt the Nord Stream 2 deal. He was the he was Biden's chosen person. He was supposed to go to Europe and he was supposed to put the fritz on the Nord Stream 2 deal. Right. So Amos Hochstein's in the middle of all of this stuff. Let me read something about him. This is Radio Free Europe. Ex-U.S. diplomat steps down from NAVTO gas board citing Ukrainian corruption concerns. When, when, when the U.S. overthrew the government of Ukraine and Hunter Biden went into Burisma Gas Company to get a, a high-paying job on the board, the NAVTO gas is the official gas company of the Ukrainian government. Amos Hochstein goes in. He was a State Department official In the Obama administration, he left the Obama administration and went to after the U.S. overthrew the government of Ukraine. He left the Obama administration and went to work on NAVTO gas, the uh, the the official gas company of Ukraine. What he did made Hunter Biden look like a schoolboy. And guess why he left? He left about concerns about. Corruption. So at any rate, let's talk about this system. Hunter Biden, Jared Kushner, and of all people, Amos Hochstein, your thoughts. Well, I'm, we, we've talked about this a little bit before. It, when, when it comes to uh, the way that international money moves and the way that it's used to leverage influence and power and to bring people into the fold or remove them from it, the, the money itself rarely leaves the room. Sometimes somebody walks in with a new wheelbarrow and dumps up another pile onto the floor. People pick up some and move it around to different pieces of the room, but it really doesn't ever leave. It's all the, the same hands, you know, in the pie. Um, mixing metaphors here a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's it, once you have been you know, allowed into the club, Mm-hmm. That, as it were, you you know, you then have this sort of revolving door of mutually beneficial corruption and influence peddling that uh, it really brings out the, the most nefarious scumbags that we could possibly unearth. You know, Steve, the other thing is that's been really revealed here is, um, and I've told this story before, I once had a client who, um, in my former world when I, where I was working, and this person was, um, I mean, just bought like a $5 million house. They had one of the three homes and just bought everything, uh, furniture, boats in the back, the whole nine yards. And I can't come to find out that this person had been appointed by the Bush administration to a position under L. Paul Brimmer with the Iraq thing and just basically had unlimited money. And I started realizing something, and that is these regime change operations, A, they're for geopolitical advantage, right? But once they make these regime change moves, these ghouls, 
tools go in, these buzzards go in, into the country that they that they now control and pick the bones through corruption, and they take every stinking dime they can get from every crooked person they can, and of course, from right out of the U.S. Treasury is the easiest, the crookedest place they can get it from. So, your thoughts on how these regime change change operations are also kind of mafia shakedowns? Well, I I mean, Eisenhower spoke on this when he warned everyone about the burgeoning military-industrial complex, or at least called it out in speech. It's debatable as to whether or not he was warning people. But um, when you when you create the conditions uh, I, financially for perpetual war, for this sort of of endless public private partnership of graft and and uh, the profiteering, um, what you're doing is it incentivize. Yes, you're incentivizing people to create new weapons of war, but you're also capturing a giant section of what would be a more innovative marketplace where people could come together with ideas on how to benefit humanity. But because uh, of the system that you've created and because of the way that you're funneling all of the innovation into weapons of war, you have now made it so that if you're a kid who's going to college, who's an engineering student or some kind of, uh, you know, involved in, in some sort of mechanical sciences or anything like that, the people that are going to, to want to grab you up are military contractors, DARPA or something like and so your your pigeonholed um in your job, in with your finances, all of this, to to follow this perpetuating cycle of destruction. I apologize if that was a little nebulous. No, it made sense. Now let's get to some of the fun stuff, if you can call it that, in a really twisted way. You know, generally, I would think Joe Biden, the way they they've been protecting him all of this long, would be untouchable. We find we found out that the FBI was holding on to the Hunter Biden laptop hard drive for a year before we even found out that it existed. That all through the tr- Trump Ukrainian um, uh, uh, impeachment, they had the information. They had the laptop. They could have just come forward and said, "Well, you can't really impeach this guy because." Because uh, what he's pointing to is pretty valid. But they didn't. They didn't say anything until it came out from Rudy Giuliani. So my question is this. Why is it that they're not protecting Joe Biden? Almost like they're hanging him out on a limb, like maybe he should be looking over his shoulder. And, you know, Barack Obama's wandering around the, uh, the, uh, the uh, White House fraternizing with Kamala Harris. One could suspect that there's something afoot. Do you remember, uh, maybe you didn't see this, I don't know, right after the election, George Galloway took, took to the air and, and he said something to the effect of, if I was Joe Biden, I would not stand too close to the, the rail on the balcony <laughs> Kamala Harris was behind me. Um, and, and I certainly wouldn't let her push the wheelchair if we went for a stroll down the hill. Um, it, the, Joe Biden was I believe, only there to secure Kamala Harris's spot as vice president. I really think Joe Biden was mostly a, a malleable placeholder. And because his, his decline is less manageable every day, um, although they are trying to put a version of Joe Biden out in a couple of different places on some early midterms, you know, 
uh, I, I guess, campaign kind of enthusiasm program, or, or he's telling people to blame Putin for inflation and gas prices and stuff. Um, the point being, Joe Biden has screwed up royally at every turn with every opportunity, every campaign promise, all the Build Back Better stuff, everything he said he was going to deliver. He has not been able to deliver. We've got 40-year inflation, high inflation. We've got, you know, uh, uh, grocery prices are out of control. Gas prices are out of control. And nobody's buying that it's anyone but the Biden administration's fault. So the Democrats have got to be wondering what they can do to salvage whatever semblance of power they have. Now, Steve, and, I, and I'll argue this, and it's not Joe Biden, because this is the direction, if you look at the Democratic Party, really, if you look at, I'd say, the Democratic Party, the uniparty, the neoliberal, neoconservative politics, the, you know, the direction that they have been dragging this country. This is where we should be. If you do the things that they've done and make the decisions that they make, this is exactly where you're going to be end up nowhere else, right? So to me, it's like, 14 months into the Biden, we'll call it the Biden administration, whoever is running this operation, everything is collapsing. They see it. And perhaps they need a scapegoat. Now, as I argued, I don't think he's calling the shots here by any stretch of the imagination. Do they take Biden, toss him off the bridge? Metaphorically, I hope I don't believe in violence. Toss him over, toss him over to the side, and try to put everything they can in his lap. For instance, and let me add this: they know that we are on the cusp of um, Russia doing what they got to do in Ukraine and finishing this thing off. That it's not going to be. I don't think it's going to be all that long. I think as we get close to May 9th, which is Victory Day, we'll see it somewhere around that. Okay, so they fold Joe Biden up. Then as soon as it's recognized that, hey, Russia said they were going to win this thing and they pretty much control in the country, this is kind of over, all over but the shouting. They throw it all in Joe Biden's lap. Ah, he was too weak. Putin overran him. Uh, the economy went bad. It was all Joe Biden. And they shove him aside and then move on with Kamala and or, you know, Pete Buttigieg or Claire McCaskill or uh, Amy Klobuchar or whatever iteration of, uh, of Joe Biden they decide to go with. Well, so I, 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 this just popped into my head, Garland, but as people's attention spans are getting shorter and, and as the sound bite drives everything and the, uh, you know, 10 second viral clip drives everything, maybe four year terms are just what you're going to get for presidents for a little bit until there's, you know, the, that the one world government that everyone seems to be promising us. I, I, I think that the typical American tendency to overreact and for that pendulum swing to way overcorrect uh, is going to be what we see. But I do think that it's going to manifest in more of a make America one party for real out loud in front of everyone's eyes sort of way where you may have a, okay, well, come on, Joe Biden was, was a little bit too weak, but now we've got uh, Kamala Harris, and we've got uh, a, you know, Adam Kinzinger, or we've got uh, the first dual woman ticket ever, Garland. Can you imagine Kamala Harris and Liz Cheney? Ooh, please don't scare me you like know? that. Or, uh, and then on the other side, we'll have DeSantis and Tulsi Gabbard, or, you know, we'll, and it'll be, that'll be the pairing in 2024 is a Republican and a Democrat versus a Republican and a Democrat. You know, that's because you're right. It is the uniparty. The masks have been off for two years. 
in terms of who these people really are for a lot of people. So I don't see any reason why they would try to continue a ruse that stopped working almost a decade ago for, you know, in, for in the eyes of most Americans. And we, we got about a minute, a minute on this. Let me ask you this. You see what's happening with Macron and his, uh, you know, they, they were looking for regime change in, in Moscow. They might, may end up getting it in Paris. But do you think we're going to start seeing that kind of thing where there are really serious challenges um, with it, within NATO, the EU and the U.S. from people who would not normally have um, a chance? One minute. Absolutely, yes. I think that that the more uh, right-wing nationalist elements, the elements that that are anti-globalist, the elements that are vocally anti-China are going to see significant gains, not just in the U.S., but in the West writ large, um, which always still means more public-private partnerships. Uh, yes, it does. We've been talking with Steve Poikin, and he is a uh, the uh, national organizi- organizer of Action for Assange. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 20 years since coup against Chavez in Venezuela, a quote-unquote trial that served to overthrow governments in other countries. 20 years after the April 2002 coup against Venezuela's then-president Hugo Chavez, the same violent and desperate blueprint continues to be applied to overthrow governments in both Venezuela and around the world. Two decades later, it is appropriate to analyze the keys to that coup, both for Venezuela and for other countries, the role of the media as political actors in the destabilization of governments and the actions of other internal and external factors to achieve it. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and editor at Venezuelan Analysis, Ricardo Vaz. As always, Ricardo, welcome back. And as always, the pleasure is all mine. You know, I think it's important for people as they look at the April 2002 coup that that was not the starting point for these types of uh, undemocratic activities, that there was a playbook that had already been well-established, particularly by the United States, and that the attack of on President Hugo Chavez was just another page in that book. Yeah, I think sometimes people can perhaps exaggerate a bit the role that Venezuela plays in, in global geopolitics. But it is true that uh, this 2002 coup had all the ingredients that you were mentioning in the, in the introduction. And one perhaps that I would highlight, because that's also where financial analysis comes from, is the role of the media. So here uh, we have a, a, a short infographic on our website, financialanalysis.com, that goes over the events of the coup if people want to to go over it. And I would also recommend that people watch, I mean, if they haven't to watch the documentary that's called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. That's on YouTube. And basically what happened is that you had two crowds, a pro and anti-government crowd that collide 
close to the presidential palace and it was a very tense moment and so on. And you had snipers that fired on both crowds and through media manipulation, the idea was sold that it was the this Chavista people, kind of paramilitaries firing on the opposition. And so with a complete dominance over the spectrum, the media sold this idea that Chavez was responsible and this was used to force him to to at least try to force him to resign, of course, he refused. But this was this is reminiscent, for example, of, of what we saw in, in Euromaidan, right? In Ukraine 2014, this idea that uh, you can manipulate reality and attribute the, the responsibility for violence to a certain actor that you want to overthrow. However, I would frame the significance of the 2002 coup slightly differently, because if we go back, to 2002, this was a time after the fall of the Soviet Union, where it seemed like the US was going to have unfettered dominance over the world and, and especially over this hemisphere. And this coup, which was overturned by this massive popular reaction, was perhaps a first sign that said, well, not so fast. And, and keep in mind that this was still a, a very non-radical version of Chavez. He would go grow more radical as time went on. Of course, the word socialism wasn't even in his discourse. But it was, uh, maybe it wasn't seen like this at the time, but it was, looking back, uh, a sign that things were about to change in, in, in the hemisphere. Just really quick, a real quick point. I, I'm glad you brought up the, the snipers in Venezuela because there were snipers in Maidan as well. Yeah, Exactly. That's the that's the parallel. Which, I mean, of course, the the media always shows the the people who died, but never asks who who, who is benefiting. From, <laughs> yes, not not just who shot him, but but who who would benefit from mm -hmm. from the from the deaths, right? In in the case of Venezuela, it was a very turbulent time, and there was never a real certainty as to who the snipers were. I mean, the most accepted version is that they were undercover officers from this notoriously right-wing police corps, the Metropolitan Police, which was later dissolved. But this this, uh, this article that you were quoting in the beginning, this is an interview with uh, Ernesto Villegas, who is now culture minister. But at the time, he was a journalist, and he wrote an excellent book that goes over all the events of the coup and, I mean, the, the available evidence to try and draw the most logical conclusion. It's called April Inside the Coup or something, and it has been translated to English. So people can find it. We'll also tweet it on, on, on Venezuela Analysis. That's that's definitely something to read. Yeah, it is called April Inside the Coup. Another interesting uh, article that ties, and that is Venezuela's great housing mission achieves major milestone of delivering 4 million homes. You know, when I, when I, last time I was in Venezuela, they were at like 3.4 million. And what the thing I found interesting was they were under heavy sanctions. And I mean, the country was just struggling beyond belief. They're doing much better now, but they were still building homes. And I talked to the people, you know, some of the poor people and asked them about it. And they were like, oh, yes, you know, you have to apply to the government. It gives to women who have children and no husband or whatever, they get them first and they, they talked about it, but they were very proud of it. And I rode by in Caracas, I rode by an area and I saw these high rises and they said, oh yes, that was a military base. And Hugo Chavez looked at it and said, no, we don't need all that much for a military base. Like 80% of it, we're going to build housing for the people. We'll only keep the other 20% for a military base. So your thoughts on the housing 
um, that's been given to people and how that in, in a country of, I think, 30 million people and the average house, like three or four people or more. So your thought on that and the legacy of Chavez and all of this thing, this coming together. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a great milestone. And it's no secret that the housing mission is one of the major flags of the Bolivar Revolution. I think if you want to tie back to the 2002 coup, I think the housing mission is perhaps one of the the greatest pieces of evidence of why the United States saw Chavez as such a dangerous figure, right? Keep in mind that the housing mission only begins much later, it only begins in 2011. But it, it speaks to how the Bolivarian Revolution came to change many things and it came to question some of these neoliberal dogmas like, like you know, you, can, you cannot touch the market, you cannot interfere with the whims of the market and and Chavez said among other things that you know housing is a right so there's no reason why if we have a state and the state has this income from from oil why we shouldn't prioritize you know giving people access to housing and if we look at the global north where there's a, a generalized housing crisis people shouldn't underestimate the 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 level of dignity and the level of comfort perhaps that that comes with having housing, right? That's one less huge worry to have in your life. So I think in that sense, it was a correct decision by the government, even under these uh, very difficult circumstances with these brutal sanctions, as you were as you were saying, to continue to prioritize the housing mission. I think it's, it's also a great example of what a government is actually supposed to do for the people that it governs. The Biden administration and I will say Democrats because the the stereotype in this country is that the Democrats are supposed to be for the people and the Republicans are supposed to be for business. The Biden administration could learn great lessons from this if they were truly interested in staying in power and governing in the best interest of the uh, constituents that that send it there because people will be very hard. It'll be very hard for people to vote against a government that actually gave them secure housing. Exactly. Not not just what the government is supposed to do, but what the government is capable of doing. Right. Garland was here, if I'm not mistaken, in December 2020. Those were legislative elections. So we're talking about I don't know, half a million houses built in, I don't know, 15 months. And that's in a country under heavy sanctions. So there's really no, you know, quote unquote, excuse for governments in the global north not to not to do something similar, right? I mean, of course, it's not that they need an excuse. It's only that these governments are not meant to provide for the people. They Their goal is to, to, to ensure that corporations continue to to, to reap huge profits at, at the cost of, of people's dignity, right? Uh, and uh, President Maduro recently said that, um, speaking uh, that a multifaceted campaign by Western countries to isolate Russia was aimed at destroying the country in order to deter the development of a multi multipolar world. He also said that the campaign against Russia, a strong ally of Venezuela, was being driven by, quote, a Western media dictatorship, unquote, that promoted Again, his quotation, obscene lies and campaigns against humanity. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we, we have seen how the media has gone into this frenzy and, and many people have been exposing it. Garland, for one, I see all the things that he publishes on Twitter. 
on, on how this, this propaganda is really unhinged to try and create this near unanimous support for aggression against Russia, right? And there's really no space for dissent, no space for even questioning the official narrative. So this we, have, we need to put in the context we talked about a few, a few weeks ago, that uh, all of a sudden the Biden administration sent a delegation to, to Caracas to see if Venezuela is going to ship oil to the United States again. And I mean, to put it in oversimplified terms, I think the U.S. had something like, you know, if you condemn Russia and Putin, we'll allow you to sell oil to the U.S. again. And Maduro is kind of saying, you know, you are the ones who are interested in the oil. Why should I do anything? Right. So there was perhaps a naive expectation from U.S. officials and, and their and their parrots in the corporate media that Maduro was just going to to change uh, altogether and renounce. Russia, which has been a very reliable and uh, a very reliable ally in times of need, just for the the privilege of, of selling oil to the United States again, when in fact it's the Democrats who are in a tough spot. So I think all these public statements by Maduro, you know, besides being uh, a coherent position that Venezuela has always had, you know, of, of a multipolar world, where we need to, to fight the, the hegemony of the United States. The, the real danger to world peace is NATO expansion and so on. It's also him reminding that he's not just going to to renounce what has been historically Venezuela's foreign policy just because the U.S. would like would like uh, to to buy oil, oil again, right? I mean, if it's in their interest, why why should uh, Venezuela make any concessions? Talk about this whole idea that of Maduro warning about a media dictatorship leading to a third world war, uh, because I think, you know, that's playing itself out uh, in the United States as as we, it's playing itself out with Twitter. It, it's it's very, very difficult uh, in the United States that has a First Amendment for for American citizens to get access to accurate information. And we know the attack on RT. We know the attack here on Sputnik. And simply because we're telling the truth. Yeah, I think this allows us to circle back to our initial point about the role of the media in, in the 2002 coup, of course, in a, in a much larger scale. But what happened here was that the, the right-wing opposition took the, the public uh, broadcaster off the air and so they had a monopoly on the airwaves and could basically show whatever narrative they wanted to. And that's pretty much what the U.S. establishment is trying to do, right? It's trying to silence any kind of, of dissent, any any questions that will, you know, allow people not, not, not even to disagree, but just to, to think and to question the official narrative that, as Maduro says, is just fueling this huge military buildup towards uh, a confrontation with, with Russia. So I think it, it is indeed uh, kind of a dangerous time because, I mean, if we can't even get uh, opposing voices on, on the air, there will be nothing stopping this this, this escalation that, that's becoming more dangerous by by the minute. And here we're talking, we're, we're not talking about just a coup that will depose a democratically elected president like we had in Venezuela in 2002. Here we're talking about two nuclear armed superpowers. Ricardo Vaz, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Durham files to get docs from DNC. Hillary campaign and fusion GPS. Special counsel John Durham filed a 23-page motion in Washington, D.C. last Wednesday. He is claiming the DNC, the 2016 Clinton campaign for president, fusion GPS, and Democratic law firm Perkins Coy for uh, are holding back relevant documents relevant to his investigation. What would it make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, author of Prejudential, Black America and the President's Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. You know, this story just won't go away. So, <laughs> and <laughs> Apparently neither will John Durham. <laughs> and neither will John Durham. We'll call him the bulldog. Uh, he's like a dog with a bone on this one. Digging holes in my yard. Margaret, your thoughts on this? Um, because, you know, I, I asked months ago, is this is this the pile of poop that got the, the bag of poop that got placed on Hillary Clinton's doorstep? And she just seems to she stepped in it and it, and it won't go away. Well, no, it won't go away and it should not go away. Uh, this is uh, this all happened six years ago. We went through the entire Trump presidency being told that he was a Russian asset, that he colluded with Putin. You hear people say it now. Well, you know, if he were president, there wouldn't be a war with Ukraine because he liked Putin, although not having a war in Ukraine would be a good thing. But but anyway, to my to my point, this was all phony. Uh, Hillary Clinton and her staff, some of whom now work for Biden, uh, people like Jake Sullivan, now the national security advisor, were involved in uh, uh, some of this, this effort to smear uh, Trump, which uh, involves illegality. And it's all coming. It's all coming out. It's not coming out fast enough to suit me, of course, or or anybody else who wants to see justice done and wants to see this uh all these lies finally put to rest. But this is it is very good news that Durham Durham is taking his I suppose it's good he's taking his time. He's making the best case that he can that this is all coming out. You know, Margaret, I think this is Durham's biggest problem. How does he go after um, and I believe it really is his problem. How does he go after the Clintons and still protect the FBI? Because I believe that's part of his job. It's hard for me to grasp, having been involved, having worked with the FBI, worked with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, that the Clinton lawyer came to the FBI to tell him something and they didn't know he was the Clinton lawyer. And it was something to hurt Hillary Clinton's enemy. That's unfathomable, number one. Number two, that at the same time that Hillary Clinton, she just got fined. Why did they fine her? Because um, they were basically, they were concealing that they were involved in the Steele dossier and that they were um, concealing from the FBI that they were funding the Steele dossier. But... At the same time, the Clinton, the Clinton's uh, people were concealing from the FEC. I might have said the FBI, the FEC, that they were funding the, the Steele dossier. The FBI was concealing from the FISA court that the Clinton people were funding the Steele dossier. So it, to me, it is so blatantly obvious. And add this. Bruce Orr was a guy who was an F, who was a Department of Justice employee. His wife, Nellie Orr 
was working for Fusion GPS and working, helping to produce the Steele dossier. It's so blatantly obvious that the FBI was part of the conspiracy. So how does the question Durham go after that and take out the Clinton people, but continue to do his best to hide that the FBI was in total collusion? Um, Your thoughts? Well, I mean, to say conflicts of interest, I think that's a that's an understatement, right? Um, but he, somebody else is going to have to be taken out. Was uh, Comey director at the time? Yes, yes, he was. Yes, he was. Yes, it was. Yes, so he's going to have to take down uh, James Comey, who went from being the goat to being the hero, and perhaps he could be the goat again. Um, so that this these are some significant problems for Durham to deal with. Um, but he has, uh, I, I believe the, uh, I mean, well, who knows with these people, I, he believe he has the, um, protection of his office to go wherever he wants to, but you are right. This is all very dicey stuff. Uh, the, the, uh, collusions, the self-dealing, the conflicts of interest, the lies, all of it go to the top and go to Hillary Clinton herself and, uh, this happened during the Obama administration. Who knows how far up it, it goes um, uh, with the other Obama people. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this all heads, but uh, where it all leads. But I am still hoping for the best because this is these miscarriages of justice have uh, done terrible damage to the country. And uh, it's still being felt. It's being used to justify the U.S. continuing this war in Ukraine, which if the U.S. wanted to end today, it could. So uh, Russiagate is bigger than Hillary, bigger than uh, uh, Trump. It's something that has to be thoroughly dissected and exposed. Uh, One quick comment. And I think the reason that Durham is doing it now is because you can do a controlled demolition as opposed to November when the Republicans get in and the demolition might not be so controlled so they can Durham can do it and he can say, OK, we got all of this and they can find the people that they want to find and take them out and then say Durham's done with the investigation. Because if the Rep- Republicans come in and they start from fresh, they have some other enemies and it might not be quite as easy. But wasn't Durham appointed by Trump? Yes. So does does that does and I I ask this because I don't know the answer. But in response to your to your to your point, does the fact that Durham was appointed by Trump mean anything or give you any? No, no. I think okay. the Republicans will really dig. <laughs> okay, right. if they get in, and who knows, they may. So, but anyway, go ahead. Okay. Well, I think um, you know they would Republicans would be accused of. Uh, um, going after uh, being partisan, selective, um, selective in their prosecution. Yes, exactly. So it would um, uh, be more helpful if things came out sooner. But these, you know, these investigations um, are have to be very thorough. So I would not, as as much as I want this truth to come out, I would not want him to be uh, sloppy and in any way endanger his case. But there was terrible wrongdoing done by Hillary Clinton uh, in order to, instead of, and and Democrats ought to be angry with her. It's one of the reasons she lost. 
instead of doing the, you know, the very basic work of a campaign and making sure she could get 10,000 more votes in Michigan, Mm -hmm. she was, uh, you know, hatching some cockamamie plot with a a British, former British spy and uh, using the DNC's law firm to do it. So she screwed up her own campaign and then uh, proceeded to do great damage to the country uh, as a result of her loss and the need to continue the cover up. I would say to you or ask that you consider, Margaret, that one of the reasons why the Democrats aren't angry with Hillary Clinton is because this this mindset seems to be a prevalent mindset within the Democratic Party. This is this seems to be how they campaign, because I, I see rem, remnants of the Clinton mindset. They were prevalent in the Biden mindset. He just happened to win, uh, whereas, whereas she lost. Well, that's true, because, you know, the, the best way to ensure that you win, of course, is to do what the people want you to do and represent their interests. But that puts them at odds with the people whose interests are most important to them, the ones who have to be told that nothing fundamentally is going to change. Uh, so, yes, they, they have their pri- – and they're doing it again. They're doing it now. Mm-hmm. Putin's, Putin's price hike. <laughs> um, you know, hoping to to fool enough people uh, into thinking that you know everything wrong in the country is uh, is Vladimir Putin's fault. So yes, that is uh, um, uh, part of the the way. It's the way they do business. And when they do win, it's it's luck. It's it's because the Republicans mess up in some circumstance like uh, COVID. Although Biden has completely failed in that regard. Uh, So you are correct. This is what uh, Democrats do. The other thing I think, too, that would be it would be important here, I don't see it coming, is there's some people that would really need to be charged with destruction of evidence. One of them would be the Mueller team or actually the Weissman team, which we really understand what was going on. Andrew Weissman was running it. But they found there was either 20 or 40,000 texts that were found between um, Lisa Page and Peter Strzok. And that is clearly in the midst of an investigation, clearly very important evidence. And the Mueller team erased them, erased them. That's that's an absolute crime that someone should be charged for. No, the media didn't touch it. Nobody said anything about it. And um, that and might I add the DNC servers, what they said was, well, we never let the FBI look at it. And then afterwards, we erased them and made images of the servers. So it's just so blatantly obvious to me that there was a cover up and no attempt to hold the people involved in the cover up um, and the uh, suppression of evidence accountable, Margaret. Well, you're absolutely right. And I I think it's funny. I remember one of the debates and Trump said to Hillary, I'd put you in jail, which, you know, it was Trump saying it. Nobody knew. But it's like she could go to jail. She could be charged and and she and others should be uh, charged. So uh, I guess slow and steady wins the race. But you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there's been uh, uh, a lot of questionable activity by people who were supposed to be um, investigating who did not do what they should have done. And uh, were, uh, these are people who know how to have an investigation. They know they're supposed to preserve evidence. They know they're supposed to go after it. I mean, the fact that they never looked at the, the DNC servers 
Um, or and what else did they not do? Not interview Julian Assange, who they wanted to blame for everything. But but at any rate, you I, I think you get my point. There was um, um, wrongdoing. There was incompetence, and and there was some actual, I believe, illegal uh, activity. So at the end of the day, where do you think all of this winds up? Do we wind up with with actionable charges here? against Hillary Clinton and the Clinton campaign? Hopefully. Um, I think that's where it ought to. It ought to lead. I just want, uh, I mean, I, I shouldn't say, you know, where I want it to lead. I want Durham to leave no stones unturned. This is something we need, the country needs, the world needs to get to the bottom of this cooked up plot which has done such terrible damage, continues to do such terrible damage to, to the country. So I hope Dermot, Durham and everybody who works with him uh, does a thorough job so that these questions can be put to rest for good. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis as always, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 